Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, and welcome to the new subscribers from YouTube. Let's see, I've got Suzanne that has subscribed on my YouTube channel. And Jonathan Clemens has subscribed. Thank you. And Jonathan has been interacting with my Facebook and social media posts. So thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Somebody's actually seeing my posts. I just never know. Speaking of posts, you've probably seen the big fiasco with the Dalai Lama. I don't even know what to say to that. This whole You want to suck my tongue? Saying that to a child is unacceptable, and I think a lot of you agree with that. He should never have said that to a child. Not surprised, but still appalled anyway. And we need to teach our children the good touch and the bad touch and what's appropriate interaction between adults and children. Another thing that really irked me this week that I'm bringing up is I saw a few people posting this meme. The only sex education my third grader should know is that they have cooties and they'll have cooties until they're married. Now, some people take that as a joke. I don't because I am an abuse advocate. I know that In this day and age, our culture is saturated with sex. A third grader knows a whole lot more than I did as a third grader in the 70s. I actually had a pretty strict upbringing, a Catholic upbringing, and I knew what sex was in the fourth grade thanks to a a neighborhood friend who blatantly told me. And yes, there should be age-appropriate information given to your children. We don't need to be graphic or giving them too much information, but I have known a lot of children, myself included, who were fondled by friends, family, and strangers. They did not have the language to express what happened to them. They had no idea what the abuser did to them. They don't know that they didn't do anything wrong. They don't know that this is not normal. They don't know the names of their body parts to communicate. This man put his fingers here, or this man did this to my penis or vagina. A lot of these kids, they have not even the basics of those things. Again, it doesn't need to be graphic, but a third grader should know basic body parts, not dirty. Those are body parts, just like an arm or a leg, just like a foot or a hand. And if you don't make it weird or gross or freak out when they're paying attention to their private parts, then it's going to be normal and natural. And you teach them from a very early age. This is good touch. This is 
not good. Nobody should be touching you in these areas that cover a swimsuit unless you give them permission to or you're with your mom and dad at the doctor and your parents tell you it's okay. The doctor's going to examine you because you're sick or whatever. But to put your head in the sand as a parent and not teach them anything about sex, the world is already teaching them about sex. If they're exposed to the computer, if they're watching TV in any sense, if they're going to their friend's house, I guarantee you they are already learning about sex. My parents didn't hide that stuff from me. My parents sent me to sex ed in the public school which was pretty tame. And then they gave me books to read. They answered my questions. They made it, this is a holy thing. Sex is holy. Your body is beautiful. And we've talked about this on the show before, uh, but I know that coming from a fundamental Baptist college and going to fundamentalist churches in my adult life, they wait until the daughter or the son is engaged and they're getting married and they say, oh, you don't need to know about sex until right before you're married. There are girls that they start bleeding and they have no idea they went through a period that this is what that is. Sheltering your kids, making them ignorant about basic bodily functions is not going to help them. It opens them up for abuse because they're not taught boundaries. They're not taught, you have a right to say no. They're not taught, this is not appropriate behavior. So yeah, I'm going on a rant here, but it really made me bent out of shape. And if you see those kind of posts, say something because ignorance for your child in this day and age is not going to help them. Anyway, that's what I'm going to say about that. It's very appropriate for this podcast. This week, I've decided to go through the book of Jeremiah, learn more about him. Jeremiah is a major prophet, and he is somebody that we can relate to as abuse survivors because he went through a lot of horrible things. And we're going to see how he responds, how he is a prophet called by God. How did he react to these things? I'm not going to go through 52 chapters. I am encouraging you when we finish the podcast to not be afraid to jump into Jeremiah and read it. Pick a translation that you find that is readable. And I'm just going to go over some basics here and maybe it will encourage you to dig a little deeper into Jeremiah and learn more about him and about God. Because a lot of it's repetitive. I'm going to go through a summary here, just so you know the basic framework. And then I'm going to go through some specific verses I'm just going to pick out. I've been reading in my Bible that I really want you to see, because it really tells you what Jeremiah was like. He was a real person. He had struggles. He had doubts. He was afraid. He didn't understand what God wanted him to do or why God was doing these things. But a lot of it is very repetitive. So like Jeremiah is a lot about God's judgment on the different pagan cities. 
And Jeremiah warns them about, you need to turn away from your pagan idols and you need to repent. And then God will stop the judgment on your country and especially Judah and Israel. And they don't repent. They don't turn away. They keep doing it. And so they suffer. It's a judgment of God in that God allows countries like Babylon, the Chaldeans, to come in and take them into slavery to destroy their temple. And so it's just a repeat all through Jeremiah. He keeps warning them and people don't listen to him. In fact, they hate him. They do horrible things to him. And people think that God of the Old Testament is not loving. And that isn't true. He's only the God of fire and brimstone. That isn't true if you read through the scriptures and you really look for the grace and mercy of God. God is very patient and he's always bringing people back. Please come back to me. I love you. Please come back. Turn from your sin. Turn from your idols and come back into the fold. So let's do this. Who is Jeremiah? Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. You may have heard that before. Why was he called the weeping prophet? Because he was so tender-hearted toward his people, Judah and Israel. So he was one of the major prophets of the Bible. And according to tradition, Jeremiah also authored the book of Kings. So when Kings was originally written, they were not two separate books, First Kings and Second Kings. They were all one book. And then Lamentations, he wrote also. He had a disciple, which was his scribe named Baruch. And so we're going to meet him. And so those two are partners. But so when was Jeremiah a prophet? Back in the days of King Josiah, the king of Judah, in Josiah's 13th year, that was 626 BC before Christ until after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 587 B.C. So during that time, there were five different kings. You will read those in the book of Jeremiah. So five kings of Judah, Josiah, Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Ooh, those names. And spelling those names. So Jeremiah did have some contemporaries now. The prophetess Huldah was a relative and a contemporary of Jeremiah. And then also Zephaniah, there's a book of Zephaniah, the prophet was Jeremiah's mentor. So what kind of family did Jeremiah come from? So he was the son of Hilkiah, who was a priest from the land of Benjamin. Benjamin is one of the 12 tribes, and they were from the village of Antoth, which that village was full of Levites. So that's their land. So basically, Jeremiah is called by God to prophecy to proclaim Jerusalem's coming destruction by invaders from the north. That's basically Babylon. And this was because Israel had forsaken God by worshiping the idols of Baal and burning their children as offerings to Baal. 
So the nation had deviated so far from God's laws that they had broken the covenant, causing God to withdraw his blessings. And so Jeremiah would tell people, Judah's going to suffer famine, foreign conquest, captivity, and they're not going to listen. So if you know the Ten Commandments, one of the top sins against God is idolatry. God doesn't tolerate idolatry. As you will see here, that is Judah and Israel's primary sin is idolatry. Now, you're asking, what does that mean, Judah and Israel? Now, the country was divided into two kingdoms based on some wars and skirmishes and fights. And so they divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, Judah, and the southern kingdom, Israel. And so when I say Judah or Israel, that's what that means. They are in the promised land. They're just decided to divide themselves into two parts. And both of them are just as sinful as the other. Okay, so moving on here. So you might have heard of Josiah. He was one of the good kings. So about five years before, Josiah, king of Judah, turned the nation towards repentance and from idolatry. According to the book of Kings, Josiah's reforms were insufficient to save Judah and Jerusalem from destruction. Yet Josiah's grandfather Manasseh led Judah back into their lustful lifestyle and returning to idolatry after Josiah died. Josiah really tried to help the Israelites to do what's right in the sight of the Lord, but the king after just came in and did everything. So let's talk about the calling of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah did resist the call by complaining that he was only a child. So we all know the verse here, Jeremiah chapter 1, in verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now that is Jeremiah's calling. And yes, he did try and resist the call by making excuses that he was only a child. Um, that pretty much means that he was not head of a home. He was unmarried. And most scholars say he was about 16 or 17. But the Lord placed the words in Jeremiah's mouth. And Jeremiah realized he had to obey. So Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, he says, His word is in my heart, a fire shut up in my bones. And Jeremiah is actually a well-trained, literate person. He was probably trained at the scribe school in Jerusalem. That's what Jewish sources claim. He was preaching against idolatry, the greed of priests and false prophets. Many years later, God instructed 
Jeremiah to write these down on scrolls. That's what his scribe Baruch was for. He would write things down for him on the scrolls. So Jeremiah goes through a lot of persecution, and you wonder, why would Jeremiah do this job? To preach and warn to people that didn't want to be preached to, who were not going to listen, who were not going to repent. Jeremiah cared about his people. It's pretty devastating to hear from the Lord that they're going to be carried away by the ungodly and pagan countries. They're going to be put into slavery. They're the women, the men, and the children, their country is going to be destroyed and pillaged. That's probably what his motive was, to keep going. So people have conspired to kill him. But the Lord always told Jeremiah that he would protect his life and declare disaster for those that persecuted him. And that reference is in Jeremiah eleven eighteen. But Jeremiah does not suffer in silence. He is very vocal. And Jeremiah complains to the Lord about his persecution. And he did not want to hear this, but the Lord told him things are going to get worse. The attacks are going to get worse. In fact, a corrupt priest named Pasher, he was a, a temple official in Jerusalem. He had Jeremiah beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate in Benjamin. And he was in the stocks overnight, no food or water. And after this, Jeremiah laments that he was mocked because he was speaking God's word, Jeremiah 27. But if he tries to shut down God's word in his heart, it's just going to burn in his heart. And he will not be able to hold those words in his heart. Isn't that true of us when the Lord's given us something that we are called to do? We're pretty relentless in doing that until it's completed. So then there were these prophets, false prophets that were claiming, hey, there's just going to be a couple of years of suffering and then there's going to be peace. Nope. So one of these false prophets was Hananiah saying, oh, within two years, the Lord's going to break the yoke of the king of Babylon and then everything's going to be great. But Jeremiah is saying, no, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to trade the yoke of wood to for a yoke iron. That's in Jeremiah 28, 13. You are a false prophet, and you shouldn't say these things to these people because they are wrong. In fact, the children of Israel are going to be in bondage for 70 years. Now, that's to Babylon. And where have we heard that before? We have heard that when we studied Daniel. He was taken away from his homeland and taken to Babylon. And so was Esther's family, was taken from the Holy Land and taken into Babylon. And then Persia defeats Babylon later. So after Jeremiah like tells the leadership that Babylon's going to come and take over. The king's officials, including Pasher, the priest, try to convince King Zedekiah that Jeremiah should be put to death for discouraging the people. Hey, you're being a real killjoy, Jeremiah. Zedekiah allowed them to do whatever they wanted, and they cast Jeremiah into a cistern where he sank down into the mud. What is a cistern? 
We talked about it on previous episodes. It's probably a mile deep hole in the ground that's usually connected at the bottom where you can reach the springs to draw water. When we were in Israel, we walked down the steps to the bottom of many cisterns in Israel, and then we had to walk back up those stairs. Imagine carrying jugs of water up those stairs, and it was probably 200 steps. And I was sucking wind for sure. But anyway, sometimes they would put people in the cistern back in the day as punishment. Some of the cisterns did not have these nice steps in them. You only could get to them by a rope. So this particular cistern, there wasn't any water in it, but there was a lot of mud. And he sank into the mud. I've read the commentary state that he was sunk up to his chest in mud because it was the soft mud. So he could have drowned, suffocated in the mud if it kept going down, or they probably put him down there to starve. And uh, there was this grandfellow named Abed, Abed Melich, who was an Ethiopian eunuch. He was one of the people that rescued Jeremiah by pulling him out of the cistern. And it took many men, and they had him put clothes under his armpits and then put the rope tied around his armpits in order to get him out of the cistern and out of the mud. Jeremiah remained in prison until Jerusalem fell to Babylon in 587 B.C. So that reference is in Jeremiah 38, 7 through 13. But the funny thing is, the Babylonians released Jeremiah and showered him with all kinds of gifts and kindness. And they gave him a place to stay that was pretty nice. And he went to live near Edaliah, who was the governor of Judea. So went to stay in Mitzpah. And that's referenced in Jeremiah 40, 5 through 6. So Jedaliah was assassinated by the prince of Ammon because supposedly he was working with the Babylonians. Hanan succeeded as the governor of Judea, and he fled to Egypt and took Jeremiah and Baruch with him and some of the king's daughters. Now that's in Jeremiah 43, 1 through 13. So it's told that Jeremiah probably stayed the rest of his life in Egypt in vain trying to get the people to repent and turn from their wicked ways. There is no actual verifiable record of his death. They do think he died in Egypt compared to all the other crazy things that happened to him, which we're going to go over. That doesn't seem too out of line. Not a very happy ending for Jeremiah, but he was very important in the Bible. His testimony is the Gospel of Matthew talks about that Jeremiah's prophecies point to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And there's 40 quotations of the book of Jeremiah in the New Testament, like in Revelation 18, they're talking about the destruction of Babylon. Hebrews talks about 
the prophetic expectation of a new covenant instead of the old covenant. And you want to know what the Messianic prophecies are in Jeremiah, you definitely can Google that. There are many of them in there. You probably know the ones in Isaiah. So that's just a basic overview. I skipped a lot of stuff, but I'm going to point out some things that he's gone through. What was his emotional life like? How did he deal with being persecuted, abused, and being the brunt of everybody hating him? I'm just going to read some verses here. Jeremiah grieves for his people. And there are so many things in here that I've highlighted that I want to mention, but I think that it would just make the episode too long. One thing I want to say about Jeremiah is you're going to see the word whore a lot, whoring after other gods. I want to explain what that means. It doesn't quite mean the same as in our current culture here. Back in biblical times, and even some countries today still do this, but they had pagan temples in these other countries that God would forbid the Israelites to visit. We're not allowed to befriend the other countries because they had these pagan temples and they would have pagan prostitutes. They would have sex in the temple for fertility rites or because of the lust of men. So they would have females and they would also have male prostitutes. This was all very common in Rome. That was very normal in the culture to have temple sex. So they are worshiping another god, a false god. And we just stated that is one of the top sins that you don't commit against the Lord is worshiping false gods, other gods. And so the Bible uses colorful language, allegorical language, they refer to Jerusalem as female. Jerusalem is referred to as a she. That's just for the that's just the poetic language of the Bible. So don't get upset when you see keep talking about her. They're not talking about an actual woman that's a, a prostitute. They're talking about Jerusalem in general going after these other gods. And when you are worshiping other gods, God says you are whoring after other gods. He's using a word picture to make a parallel point with you are cheating on me with other gods. So you see the word whoring after other gods. That's what that means. That's just a word picture. It's poetic language. And I find it interesting in chapter 3, verse 8. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one Israel, that I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lately, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. So they were worshiping gods of stone and gods of the trees. Yet for all of her treacherous sister, Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Return, faithless Israel, 
For I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God. Yeah, people don't realize that God divorced Israel. There mentions more than one place in the Bible. But God is going to take Israel back because of his love and mercy. But Israel needs to repent. So when you hear people talk about divorce as a sin, not necessarily because God divorced Israel. And there's a lot of context to that. So people get bent out of shape when they say, when I say God divorced Israel. It's a relationship. The Jews were committing adultery by cheating on God with other countries that served pagan gods. So that's very important to understand in this book. You will see it a whole bunch. So much I want to say in here, but it's also a lot of language about the shepherds, the shepherds abusing the flock and the flock scattering and that you need to take care of my flock, but you haven't. And the shepherds are language for the leaders of Israel that are supposed to be in charge and they don't take care of the flock. So yeah, here's a verse. He's talking about Israel's sons. Israel's sons have perverted their way. They've forgotten the Lord, their God. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Truly, the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So they were worshiping on the tops of these mountains, having orgies, worshiping the trees and the stone. So this is the kind of this is the kind of stuff God is angry about. They will not repent. They swear falsely. They felt no anguish. They refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have no sense. So that's chapter five. Very descriptive imagery here in Jeremiah. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things? No, they're talking about going to the temple. Anyway, we're going to go into chapter 8. And again, it repeats quite a bit. That God is telling them, you are cheating on me, and please come back, please repent. So Jeremiah is grieving for his people. In chapter 8, verse 18, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. I mourn in dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And it keeps going in chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. So that's why he's called the weeping prophet. In verse 10, he says, I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness. So he also says, and he's talking that everybody's a liar and he can't trust anybody. You ever been in a situation like that? that you don't have anybody on your side? And let's, Jeremiah didn't have any friends. Not that I could tell, except maybe Baruch. So like, Chapter 9, verse 4, 
Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Oh, not even his family he can trust. Nobody's on his side. People are liars. And I'm looking down at my Bible because I have everything highlighted in here. So it's easier than using a, an internet app to read the scriptures here. So Jeremiah doesn't pull any punches when he's talking to the Lord. He's questioning, why do the wicked prosper? And we all say that. How come I'm living a righteous life and I got all these problems and... You know, you see Joe Schmo over there, and he's got a nice car and a nice house and a, a successful job, and he's doing all these wicked things, but God isn't punishing him. We have all seen that. And even Jeremiah is doing this, too, talking with the Lord. So we're in chapter 12. So he starts out his complaint with, Righteous are you, Lord, when I complain to you. you got to... Do some praise for, for complaining. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive? But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. And this is what he says. Jeremiah says this. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. He's asking for the Lord to heap revenge on them, to destroy them. So God's answering Jeremiah. In verse 6, for even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. So God's telling them, don't trust them. You're right not to trust people because they turn their heart from the Lord.
Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.